Happy New Year, and welcome to a new season of Interwoven, a podcast from Plymouth Plantation. I'm your host, Hilary Goodnow. This year, we're setting out to explore the ways stories weave through generations, communities, and cultures to inform our contemporary lives. Rooted deep in the exploration of the 17th century, we're expanding beyond the relationships between the Wampanoag people and the pilgrims to discuss larger cross-cultural interactions of the varied people who lived along these shores of change 400 years ago. To get us started on this exciting new journey, I spoke with Curator of Collections Dr. Catherine Ness about the global economy of the 17th century that fueled the material world of Plymouth Colony and what it takes to make a pilgrim house a home. Kate, part of your role as our Curator of Collections is to make the houses in the 17th century English village feel real and feel like authentic representations of the people who actually lived there 400 years ago. So can you describe for our listeners the curatorial process that goes into making a pilgrim house a home? What source material do you start with? We have a few different starting points. From archaeological research and collections of antiques, we can get an idea of the kinds of material culture, or the stuff, that the pilgrims might have had. And we really use this so that we are sure that we're not displaying something that wasn't invented yet, or that we're not showing up things that were considered outdated by the 1620s. We also use documents to determine some of the things that they might have actually had. Records like letters, merchant accounts, shipping manifests, diaries, and legal documents might list specific items that people wanted to buy or things they actually owned. And because we can sometimes identify either the author or the subject of the document, This approach helps us connect specific items with specific people. It's worth mentioning that one of the most useful documentary sources, probate inventories, were taken after someone died. So for many of the pilgrims, they date to well after 1624, which is the year we're portraying. It can be kind of tricky sometimes to tell what people actually owned in 1624 here in Plymouth versus what they bought later but we do our best. Another useful source is contemporary art. If you look at Dutch genre paintings, for example, you can get a good idea of how objects were used and stored, as well as different activities that might have taken place in specific settings. By combining all of these sources, we're able to get a pretty good idea of how the houses should look and what kinds of reproduction pieces we need in order to make the houses look right and be functional for our staff members who demonstrate pilgrim life. So how is each house in the 17th century English village a reflection of the specific people who lived there? We try to personalize the houses to reflect the inhabitants based on what we know about the specific family. We know that Brewster, for example, had a lot of books when they inventoried his possessions after his death. So you should see books in our recreated version of his house. I have to say, sometimes the other pilgrims borrow the books, so don't worry if you don't see them in the Brewster house. Similarly, if we know that someone did a specific job in the village, like Samuel Fuller, who acted as the surgeon, then we'll put tools of that trade in his or her house exhibit. Can you hypothesize someone's occupation or their social status status, or their political inclination based on material culture? 
We can sometimes identify personal preferences from material culture, but you have to keep in mind that consumer choice is often really hard to identify if you're just looking at historical or archeological resources. So think about your own life. Did you pick out the dishes that you have in your house or did you inherit them? Uh, they were a gift. Okay, so have you ever explained that to anyone in writing? Not in writing, but if someone compliments you on your dishes, you might say, oh, they were a gift from a friend, or, oh, I picked those up, they were on sale at Ikea. But those are things you say verbally. <laughs> so future historians might not have no idea that your dishes were a gift. Archaeologists could unearth your dishes, they could study them, historians could read all of your emails, but they would have no idea how you ended up with those dishes. And the same thing happens in the past. It can be kind of tricky sometimes to tell why people bought or owned certain things. To counter this, I find that it's helpful to think about household items on different scales. Let's say, for example, that we find a Dutch figurine in a 17th century English household. If we just look at it in the context of this one household, we might be tempted to think, wow, they were Dutch, or maybe they went to Holland and brought it back as a souvenir. And this could be the case, but if every house in the neighborhood has a similar figurine, then it probably doesn't mean everyone was Dutch or everyone went to Holland, but rather it might mean that that particular figurine was fashionable and that a lot of merchants in the area sold it. It helps to consider things on both a small scale, like the household level, and on a bigger scale, like the neighborhood or city level. When you do this, you can start to see evidence of where a house might be unique. You can see evidence of personal preference, for instance, if one house really liked beef and had a lot of cow bones in a trash pit compared to their neighbors. Evidence of wealth might show up if one family had a lot of really fancy ceramics and imported goods, and no one else had that. You might see a family's ancestry uh, start to become obvious if they have unique utilitarian items that were connected to a specific country that none of their neighbors had, like, for example, a bidet. Objects also say a lot about our activities, our beliefs, and our daily lives. Someone who had a lot of tools to make barrels, for example, might have been a cooper or a barrel maker. When archaeologists find a rosary, they conclude that a person who lived at or visited the site was Catholic. Likewise, when you use an object repeatedly, it starts to wear down in predictable ways. My favorite example of this is 17th century pewter spoons. People probably used the same spoon every day, and over time, the bowls of the spoon, so where you scoop up the food, started to change shape. For right-handed people, they wear in one direction, while spoons that were used by lefties wear in another direction. So we might never know who used the spoon, what kinds of food they liked, or even what their name was, but we can tell you which hand they favored, and maybe even how long they used that spoon. Just like today, though, it's important to know that in the 17th century, having imported objects or items from a country other than yours didn't necessarily mean anything specific about you. I have dishes myself that were made in China, England, and Cape Cod, but that doesn't mean I'm Chinese, English, or even from the Cape. Similarly, I didn't pay extra from the dishes from China because they had to travel the longest distance. We might be tempted to think that in the 17th century, consumers had to pay more for imported goods, and that these items therefore represented wealth. In some cases, that might have been true. Imported goods probably did cost a little bit more, but the costs probably weren't prohibitive. 
Archaeological studies of the poorest 17th century households in Exeter, UK, for example, found that between 7 and 15% of the household ceramics were imported, and that the families enjoyed deltware from the Netherlands, Italian marbled slipware. So while it's possible to infer that someone's social status based on their imported goods, you also have to remember that almost everyone could have owned at least some imported objects, and that the presence of non-locally made items doesn't necessarily mean they were wealthy, or even that they sympathized with a specific country or political affiliation. Going back to the idea of the probate inventory, we know what people have in their household after they've lived in the colony for a decade or more, but what, if anything, do we know the pilgrims started with? Do we know what they brought with them on the Mayflower? Unfortunately, we don't know exactly what they brought. They didn't inventory the Mayflower's cargo. That said, you can look at some of the written sources and get a few clues. So we know, for example, that they brought what they called a great iron screw with them, which was a tool used to hoist large wooden beams. They were bringing it so that they could build their houses when they arrived here, but it actually helped them repair the Mayflower when she developed some problems in the middle of the voyage. And so when they talk about that in the, the documents about the voyage, they're mentioning a specific object. So from that particular instance, we can infer that they brought also they also brought other tools uh, that they would have used to build their own houses, clear land, and farm. Obviously, they would have brought things like clothing, furniture, toys for children, and other items that they considered essential to daily life for an Englishman. We also know they brought two dogs, a spaniel for hunting, and a mastiff for guarding the village. So we can reasonably conclude that they also brought guns for hunting, and possibly weapons and armor to defend themselves against threats. I want to highlight here that these threats might have come from native populations who weren't friendly, but they could also have come from other Europeans who either felt that the pilgrims were encroaching on their territory or were just not happy that the pilgrims were there. It wasn't just one possible enemy. Archaeology also gives us some clues. For the past few years, we've been partnering with a team of archaeologists from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and last year they found the first evidence of the original 1620 settlement. These finds show that while the pilgrims didn't have a lot of stuff in the early years, they did have items from all over the world, including English and German ceramics, as well as native pottery. So to our knowledge, Stephen Hopkins was the only Mayflower passenger who had actually been to the New World before. He had come to Virginia in 1610 and 1611. So how would someone with no experience setting up a New World plantation or planning a household in New England go, to go about putting together a packing list? Just like someone attempting to homestead today, the pilgrims probably looked to others who had been in the Americas for suggestions. People like Stephen Hopkins, who, as you said, had come to Virginia before, and Captain John Smith, who went to Virginia but also came up here to New England, both of those individuals had an idea of what to expect in terms of climate, local resources, and even local native populations. Since European traders had been in New England for over a hundred years, and Jamestown was already 13 years old by the time the pilgrims left England, there were most likely quite a few written sources that people could have used to help them figure out what to pack and what to expect. 
So as you're getting ready to pack up your belongings, to join this new venture, what was the 17th century shopping experience like? Would it be different for families like the Tillys, who lived in rural communities, compared to families like the Warrens, who came from London? It probably was a little different if you lived in the country versus the city. But regardless, 17th century consumers had a very different shopping experience than we do today. There wasn't any one-stop shopping option like Walmart or Target. They didn't have two-day shipping. Instead, people went to dedicated markets for specific goods. So you would go to a butcher for meat, you'd go to a baker for bread, and a cobbler for shoes. Items like clothing, shoes, and furniture were all made by hand and were most likely made to order. So you couldn't really go to a store and expect to walk out with something that day. All of this might sound really foreign, but the actual buying experience was probably somewhat similar to what we have today. In Europe, they had a complex fiscal system with credit and money. It wasn't always like bartering a chicken for a pair of shoes. Unlike today, where money is based on a specific government-issued currency and you have to change that currency when you go to a new country, 17th century money was actually based on the value of the metal that made up the coins themselves. So it didn't really matter if you used English shillings in France or Spanish reales in England. As long as the coin was the right weight and metal to meet the cost of the object, you should be okay. Keep in mind, though, that when they came to the New World, the pilgrims probably did have to barter to some extent. Precious metals like gold and silver might not have been as valued by the local populations as they were in Europe. The pilgrims traded goods when dealing with their Wampanoag neighbors, including beads and tools, to establish diplomatic relations, as well as get supplies for items like fur that they could send back to Europe, both for money or more supplies and trade goods. Plymouth Colony was originally a joint stock company with over 60 merchant shareholders agreeing to support the families here in New England. So how did that financial arrangement change the shopping experience for the pilgrims once they were here in New England? There were a lot of ways that they could have gotten items, depending on where the items themselves came from. English ceramics, for example, would have been shipped to Plymouth directly from England. Black pepper, in contrast, had to come from Asia, where the Dutch East India Company, or the VOC, had a monopoly. Consequently, pepper would have been brought to Europe by the VOC merchants, and it might have passed through several different merchants before getting on a ship to come to the Americas. Each time these goods changed hands, the price went up. So some items could have been very expensive simply because of the complex trade network involved in getting it to Plymouth. One thing that's important to remember, though, is that these complex and sometimes lengthy shipping routes did not necessarily mean that the colonists were behind the times in terms of fashion and trends. Archaeological evidence from 18th century sites suggests that there wasn't much of a delay in getting trendy new ceramics and objects to America after they became popular in Europe. You could almost say that a modern equivalent might be Etsy. You can buy handmade items that are custom-made after you place your order, so it could take several weeks for your item to be made, and then it gets shipped to you, which might take a while too. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's out of date by the time it arrives at your door. So clearly, from what you're saying, New England was just a new addition to a long-established global economy. Was there any kind of local economy here in Plymouth Colony for goods or services? 
Well, the pilgrims were largely dependent on the global economy for some goods, but as you say, they did have some local options. They had to build their own houses and grow their own food, so they're making quite a few of their own things. We also know they traded quite a bit with their native neighbors, so they're probably combining European and locally made goods in their households. It's also worthwhile to consider that they might have had official shipments of supplies that came from England and were meant just for the people here in Plymouth Colony, but they also had frequent contact with traders, fur trappers, and other ships. So they might have been able to buy items from any of these visitors in addition to those official shipments of goods. The local economy might have looked something like this. They grow maize, they trade it to native individuals for fur, which they sell to English merchants in exchange for money and supplies. That money could have gone into buying things in Europe, like supplies, or from passing ships, while the supplies might have been traded for more furs or for native household items. In terms of major industrial efforts that might have impacted this economy, we start to see commercial industries appearing in the 1630s, with Boston being the biggest industrial center. The Jenny Grist Mill is one of the first big industrial additions to Plymouth, and that starts here in 1636, but we're still learning about the industry and production in Plymouth Colony, so stay tuned. Okay, practical curatorial question. We're talking about a global marketplace uh, and also how it contrasts with a local marketplace. So how do we reflect this marketplace in our exhibits? What can guests see when they visit the 17th century English village that shows what we've been talking about? The early modern global marketplace is reflected in our English village in a few different ways. Probably some of the most obvious examples are a combination of household items from places throughout Europe, including Dutch items like Delft pottery and milk cans, and English things like borderware ceramics and iron pots and pans. Many of the textiles in 17th century Plymouth might have come from Holland, England, or Spain. And we try to exhibit reproductions of those as best we can. Some of the more subtle ephemeral examples of the global economy include the foods that we use when we're doing cooking demonstrations. Black pepper, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, was from the Dutch East Indies or Asia, while olive oil could have come from Spain or Italy. So when you combine these objects and foods with other things from the New World, like houses that use local material and turkeys, you can hopefully start to see just how connected the pilgrims truly were to the global economy. This also makes me think about some of the foods that visitors can see in our reproduction kitchen gardens also. Things like... Um, squashes or pompions, which is the English word for them. Squashes are from the New World, so they're from the Americas. They're brought back to Europe in the Colombian Exchange, cultivated in Europe, and then the pilgrims brought them back to plant in their gardens here in New England. And I think the same is true for peanuts as well. So there are all these foods that are kind of going around and around the Atlantic world and being adapted and adopted by different cultures. Absolutely. There are long lists of those kinds of foods, and also how the different European powers adopt them. Spain adopted different foods than England uh, and was more willing to experiment with foods in some ways, whereas England might have been more excited about other foods. So you can definitely see this kind of global food exchange happening. So we've been talking a lot about the interconnectivity between New England 
Jamestown, we've talked a little bit about these European markets, even far-flung markets in Indonesia and Jakarta. And yet there's still a purveying narrative in American culture of the pilgrims being self-sufficient, economically independent, and why do you think there is that myth of self-sufficiency that is shrouding the pilgrims when it's so clear from what you've been saying that they're part of a global economy and, and a really rising global culture? It's a great question. I think that pervading narrative that pilgrims are this isolated, completely self-sufficient people is a complex issue. They, the pilgrims, are so far removed from us in terms of time frame and worldview that we often tend to assume that things were either simpler or less sophisticated than they might have actually been, including things like the global economy. It's kind of like saying, well, they didn't have Amazon.com or credit cards, so they could only get stuff by trading chickens and goats for shoes and furniture, when, in fact, they actually had credit, currency, and a really complex economic system. In some ways, this idea of being self-sufficient and economically independent might also be driven by a sense of American history being peopled with these pioneers who were out to tame the world with absolutely no help, when, in fact, they were probably always connected to a broader global world. This idea of interconnectivity is something that many scholars from different disciplines, including history and archaeology, are starting to explore in different directions, and they're reaching some pretty exciting conclusions. I know a lot of historians are working with this idea of what we call the Atlantic world of Spanish, Portuguese, um, native peoples, English peoples, native people of the Caribbean, Africa, so of all of these cultures existing in the perimeter around the Atlantic and the, the interpersonal exchanges that are happening on the Atlantic, uh, people that are crossing the seas multiple times. One of the facts that I love sharing with our guests is that Squanto or to Squantum had actually crossed the Atlantic more times than 99% of the pilgrims on the Mayflower. And just that fact tends to really get people thinking differently about the narrative that we're, that we're so used to hearing about the pilgrims. That a native man of Patuxet, the Wampanoag name for Plymouth, is more worldly in that sense than someone who was born and raised in a small parish in England and had never left their community till they came 3,000 miles here to New England. So I think all of this new research is really going to show the world uh, that the colonial period was not a one-way street um, and it was not just Western Europe to the East Coast of the United States. It was a very, it was part of a much bigger shift that's going on across the world. It's so exciting. Absolutely. And you can see that even just reading uh, William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation. He, he documents all these letters that are going back and forth. And if you think about the fact that it's not an email, when they deliver a letter, they actually have to talk to somebody. So there's exchange going on, both written, but also verbal and economic. And all of these different communications and, and interactions are happening um, in so many different directions. So it's really exciting to see that. And it's not just Plymouth, Massachusetts, or Plymouth Colony to England. A lot of their letters are going to Holland, so they have to go to England and then go to Holland and then come back by the same route. And they have letters from New Amsterdam, which today is New York, so there's things going up and down the east coast of North America as well. And there's a cache of letters that we still haven't found yet, because when the fortune 
um, which is a rental ship that they have. Um, that is, they send back to England laden down with fur and supplies to sell for, um, to get money to buy new materials. It's seized by French pirates. And all of this correspondence from Plymouth Colony leadership to their friends and business associates in England is captured along with the ship. And some of it makes its way back to us through Mort's relation, but some of it we still haven't found yet. So there's a treasure trove of information about Plymouth Colony somewhere in France, perhaps, who knows? But again, we're, we have to change the way we look at Plymouth Colony to find answers to questions we've always asked. Because if we always look at that one route of England to New England, you, you're barely getting a fraction of the picture of what was actually going on in the 17th century world. Absolutely. The Mayflower returned to England, so you have to think about the stuff going back. Our collections are such an important part of our research engine here at Plymouth Plantation. Not only the documents that we study and work with, but our archaeological collections, our originals collections. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about those collections and how in the future they might be able to access them? Sure. So as you mentioned, we have a couple of major collections here. Uh, the two that I focus on the most are the archaeology collections and the originals collection. Our archaeology collection includes over 50,000 objects from almost a dozen sites in and around Plymouth and Barnstable counties. So that's kind of the greater Plymouth area um, as well as the Cape. The objects range in date from 8,000-year-old native stone tools to 20th century trash, including a D battery. And if you look at all of them together, they really give a great insight into the history of the region over a very, very long time span. And this helps us put the Pilgrim story into context. We can think about what happened before they arrived and how their actions changed the region for centuries to come. Our other major collection, as I mentioned, is the originals. And this is really objects that are from the 17th century or slightly later. Unlike the archaeology collection, these pieces are intact, or mostly intact, and they include things that would have most likely decayed in the ground, such as wooden furniture, textiles, or metal objects. Together, these two collections give us a really good idea of the material culture and daily life of the 17th century. I like to tell our visitors that the archaeology shows us what people chose to have. If you think about your own buying habits, you don't go out and purchase everything that they sell at Target. You've picked specific items, either that you need or things you like or things you can afford. And the same happened in the 17th century. The archaeology points us to the little things, the daily life stuff that people bought, used, and eventually either lost or threw out and probably weren't important enough to document. Because these objects are often decayed or broken, we can turn to the originals collection to see examples of similar objects that are intact and therefore we can better understand the fragments. When we use this research to create reproductions that furnish our exhibits, whether it's the home site, the village, or the Mayflower II, we are basically doing what we call experimental archaeology. We're using these reproductions. And what I find especially exciting is that when we use the reproductions, we learn things like how heat disperses when we're cooking items, or maybe how one type of handle is easier to use than another type. We also kind of get ideas for how food tastes when it's cooked in one dish versus another. All of these things that we might not be able to know if we were just studying broken bits of pottery or 
400-year-old intact vessels. So while the collections help us understand the kinds of things we need to have in the exhibits, the exhibit reproductions help us better understand the objects in the collections. And for me, this is a really cool cycle that's been very eye-opening and has in many ways changed how I personally look at 17th century material culture. Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is brought to you by Plymouth Plantation, hosted by Hilary Goodnow and produced by Tom Begley. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening.